Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, I'm Gary Bloom. Welcome to a special edition of On the Sporting Couch. Our programme today comes from Harley Street in West London, home of Cognacity, one of the country's leading clinics dealing with all aspects of diagnosis and treatment of mental health, and the industry leader working with elite sportsmen and women. I'm joined in the next hour by Director of Cognacity, Dr Philip Hopley, a psychiatrist and former rugby player, who's developed and carried out many of the treatments our sports stars undertake if they feel they aren't performing at their best psychologically. In the next hour, we'll be discussing the series and looking back on what we've learned from our guests who've joined us on the sporting couch. Sports stars like Marcus Truscothic, Olympic swimmer Rebecca Adlington, footballer Keith Gillespie, rugby referee Nigel Owens, dartsman James Wade and rugby player Duncan Bell and you can listen to these programmes again by clicking on talksport.com forward slash sporting dash couch. I'm a psychotherapist, counsellor and sports broadcaster and that means I work one-to-one with all sorts of people who are having or have experienced problems in their day-to-day lives. It's sometimes called a talking therapy and I'm undertaking this project to help widen the understanding of mental well-being in sport and hopefully this programme will give a greater understanding of what goes on between therapist and client. Welcome to On the Sporting Couch with me, Gary Bloom, and sports psychiatrist, Dr Phil Hopley. Fantastic venue, first of all, Phil, and many thanks for inviting us in to record the show here. I'm going to start with a a question that I'm often asked. What's the difference between a psychiatrist, a clinical psychologist, and a psychotherapist? Well, Gary, the joke goes that it's the psychiatrists that prescribe the heavy drugs. Um, (laughs) The the, the, the clear difference is that to be a psychiatrist, you train in medicine and your area of specialist practice is in mental health and psychological well-being. If you're a psychologist, you've usually taken a psychology degree and gone on to work in clinical psychology. That's helping people through different modalities of therapies or talking treatments. And a psychotherapist is someone who's probably come from a counselling background, has studied some courses, interested in helping people, and has built on that experience, but hasn't necessarily gone down the route of training formally as a clinical psychologist. So which of those three branches of psychology is most suited, do you think, 
to sportsmen or women who might be struggling? All three. I mean, the success in sport is always built around teams. Even if you look at individual sports, so you've got your tennis players, your golfers, your Olympic athletes, they never succeed on their own. They might be performing on their own, but there's always a team around them. And similarly, in mental health, you do need a team approach in order to get really good quality outcomes because different approaches work differently for different people. So give me a a flavour of when you'd say, actually, this person would be best seeing a clinical psychologist or that person would be best seeing somebody like myself, a psychotherapist. So at Cognacity, we always take the approach that it's important to get a really good understanding of the problem. We sometimes call it a diagnosis at the front end. So 99 times out of 100, we would have a psychiatrist make the initial assessment, work out what the nature of the problems are, come up with a working diagnosis, and then a formulation as to the best way forward. A small number of people we see need medication because of the severity of their symptoms, but the vast majority will be referred on to some kind of talking therapy. And in my experience, it's really to do with that person's expertise combined with the way in which they engage with patients. So if I'm sitting here and I'm thinking, should I send someone to see a Gary or a Paul or a Sandra, I'm thinking very much about the person in front of me and the way that those therapists would work. So there's not really a sort of fixed formula. I'd just like to talk uh, about the difference between individual sportsmen, the tennis players, the golfers, and the team sport players. Do you think they come with different problems? I think they do. I mean, I think that the pressure that is placed on an individual sportsman or sportswoman is very interesting because, in a sense, in the heat of battle, you're out Mm. there on your own. We're talking here about the performance domain. Cricket for me, is a fascinating sport because it straddles both. You've got a team performing, but at each of the sort of critical moments, as an individual cricketer, you're either batting on your own or you're bowling on your own. And that may, in part, explain why in the work we do, we see much higher incidence of mental health problems in cricketers than in other team sports. And, of course, that takes us very neatly into one of our guests on, on the sporting couch, former England captain Marcus Truscothic, what was your overall impression listening to him on the uh, on the broadcast? Well, it was fascinating. I mean, first of all, hats off to Marcus because he really was the trailblazer for sportsmen to come forward and declare their struggles with mental health. And as a result of his openness, his bravery, so many people have sought help and got themselves better. So that's really, really crucial. But what struck me was... And you went after it quite sort of hard. You know, why, why has he got this reluctance to look in further depth at why he perhaps has developed these problems? In my experience of working across a range of sports, that's not uncommon because at the end of the day, these individuals want to perform and perform at their best. So if they're having a problem with their diet or a problem with particular muscle groups, they don't want to know what the neurophysiology or the nutritional evidence is behind it. They want a quick fix. They want to get back out there. They want to perform again. Marcus is interesting because, of course, as you get towards the end of your playing career, then perhaps there is more time that's available to look into these things in more detail. But I suspect that, as you quite rightly said, Gary, there is an underlying fear of what might come out if one explores this in more detail. And could that potentially actually impact performance in a negative way for a longer time? One of the most interesting aspects of my discussion with Marcus Truscothic was why he didn't know what was wrong with him. I can't give an answer to why, because it would be somebody telling me why, because I'm not aware of it. If I, if I haven't worked out why, then I can't control why. I, all I can control is 
if I pull a hamstring running between wickets like I very often do, <laughs> how can I get better? How am I going to get my leg better so that I can play cricket next week? Or um, I've got a punctured tyre, how am I going to get it better? Go and get a new tyre, whatever it may be. And it's the same, exactly the same process. I don't know why. I don't want to know why. It's, it's irrelevant why, why to me. Why don't you want to know why? Because many people, given your history of, of mental health and, and all the things that have affected your career, would say, I really want to know why this has affected me from being a little boy. But that's not you. No. I, I, that's not a criticism. No, Mark, no, no, it? absolutely. I'm, it's nothing burning inside me to know why, because I don't think it would make any difference. Is there fear? No, I, I just, there's just no desire. What difference does it make? Okay, you tell me why. Um... I was brought up in a certain fashion, whatever it may be. Okay, deal. Let's move on. What what is it going to achieve now? What are we going to achieve by finding how or why this has happened? The counter argument would go that you would understand it better and you would resolve it and maybe have a, a different path to resolving this long term because you're a relatively young man. This is going to go on presumably for yeah. the rest of your life. Yeah. There are people who would say, listening to this broadcast, well, finding out why is the key to the the, the problem. Okay, I know you disagree that's, with yeah, me. Yeah, that's not in my that's not in my mind. I don't see as and this program is not here to yeah. find out why. But my fascination, and I'm owning my fascination here, yeah. Marcus, is to right, really understand why you don't want to know why. Because I just don't have any desire. It's really not in me to go. I don't want. I want to know why. You just I'm want. Just, I'm just happy to keep control of it because it. It's horrible when it goes out of control, so you want to know how to put it right all the time. And is the fear that if you try to dig into the why, that it might leap out of control, almost like a genie out of a bottle? I've never thought I could probably solve the problem. Once I've, In the last 10 years, 11 years, since I've really understood what depression, anxiety is, yes, you want to be better and you want it under control, but I've never thought, how can I cure this? Can I cure this? I don't know if I can. So I, because I'm not sure if I can, I've never even thought, oh, let's go and cure it. Let's try and cure it. So that's that. those pro, those thoughts have never come to my mind to go, let's put it to bed forever because I don't know if I can. <laughs> I don't know how. I, and I've never thought I could. So that was Marcus Triscothic who clearly didn't want to know what was wrong with him because his game was dependent on everything working in the way that he had decided it was going to work. Do you think there's a difference in cricket between batsmen and bowlers? That's a very good question. I think that, in a sense, there is, because if, you, if you're if you an out-and-out batsman, you're on the last-chance saloon every time. As soon as you're out, you're out. That's it. So I think the pressure can be perceived by batsmen to be more intense in a certain way. I say that with some reservation. If you were bowling the last over in the world T20... Uh, and the pressure's on you to hold it together, clearly that is immensely mentally challenging too. But bowlers do get a second chance. You know, they're on for a spell, they're not just there. So with all these things, it's very much about how an individual perceives the situation they're dealing with and how their thinking styles, we sometimes refer to these as mind traps, can get in the way of them focusing purely on their good outcome, their performance. Just moving slightly to one side of, of this conversation... Uh, there are cricketers who I've seen who have a very interesting relationship with sledging. And just in case anybody doesn't know what sledging is, it means verbally abusing, to a certain degree, the batsman. What's your view on sledging? I think sledging, uh, gamesmanship, uh, some people might even call it bullying, 
has always been and will always be a part of sport. It's looking for that kind of slight edge that you can get psychologically. It impacts different people different ways, and the reason it impacts different people in different ways is because of how they perceive what's going on, and perhaps also how their mental state is, what their resilience is like. I think it's great that these kind of challenging behaviours are focused upon, but the reality is they'll, they'll never go away. I'm much more interested as a psychiatrist in enabling individuals to be robust enough to recognise that, interpret it in a less threatening way and not let it impact their performance. When we're looking to change behaviours, if you think about how parents, parent-children, etc., if you give attention to a behaviour, you're likely to reinforce it. Ignore the negative stuff, it tends to die away. And Mark has talked about that in, in his interview, that only once in his entire time as a batsman was he sledged about his psychological problems and he said that was the line in the sand for him. Could you sympathise with him? Yeah, very much. I mean, in a sense, anyone who's performing is going to have some kind of Achilles heel and you're going to feel most vulnerable when that is brought up. It doesn't necessarily have to be mental health. It could be to do with relationships. It could be to do with a whole range of things. And, of course, as a, as a human working in this field, I'm very empathic to anyone who's in a situation where they're suffering. Welcome back to On the Sporting Couch, coming from Harley Street in London. We're looking back at the series where leading sportsmen and women have been opening up about how they've coped with the strains of being a professional sports person. I think one of the key differences between a psychotherapist and a psychiatrist is a psychotherapist doesn't always look for a diagnosis in a way that perhaps a psychiatrist might do so. And diagnosis has come up in this series, especially with darts player James Wade. What was your impressions around that and, and, and labelling people with particular problems? The history of diagnosis and diagnostic labels is very interesting. It really came about because if we go back 50 years or so, you had a bunch of psychiatrists in America and a bunch of psychiatrists in the UK and Europe who were talking a slightly different language. And so things were getting lost in translation. So the classificatory systems were introduced in order to overcome that. I, I do see that there are some difficulties with labelling and how diagnosis can be used sometimes in pejorative ways. But in, in my practice and at Cognacity, it's essential that we're talking the same language, we know what we're dealing with, and we're directing treatments that are known to have an evidence base with good outcomes at the right kind of conditions. One of the most striking bits of our programme with James Wade, the darts player, was his anger at not being diagnosed when he was a young man. I don't know if the help was there for them to even really go into it. You know, we as a typical family, you know, we wouldn't have been at that time, we wouldn't have never been able to afford private, private uh, healthcare or anything like that. I don't think it was also aware when I was... It, obviously, people started to hear of these things, these umbrella words that, that, that cover a lot of things, but I don't think at the time it was it was that aware, if I'm honest. Are you a bit cross about the fact that nobody could actually pick this up and help you? Yeah, I'm, I'm, yeah that's still got a, a burning rage inside me that teachers were so ignorant. You know, to be told by a teacher you'll be nothing, you'll be a no-one, you'll never have anything, is, well crazy. Phil, what's your reaction to, to James's anger there? Yeah, wholly understandable that he feels that in some ways an opportunity to treat him at an earlier age was missed. I think, to be fair though, that the, um, the diagnosis of attention deficit disorder and bipolar disorder, there are great similarities. This was happening at a time when his brain was evolving. Adolescence itself is a time of great change in terms of our neural structures in the brain. 
and even the most balanced and non-mentally ill um, patient at that stage would really kind of struggle with some of the changes. And you've probably seen this yourself in the work you do with uh, adolescents at school, Gary. That's right. And sometimes one week uh, a young person, adolescent, can seem absolutely fine. And the next week you would be forgiven for thinking there could be mental health issues. I presume that doesn't surprise you. No, not at all. And that's why, again, coming back to how we diagnose, we have to look for consistency and we have to look for symptoms that are there over a period of time. So it would be wrong to say someone, for example, is depressed if periodically their mood dips low. But if pervasively over a two-week period their mood is always down, then the question starts to come in, is this a mental disorder? What sort of treatment should we be looking at? You talk about treatment and it came up in the James Wade programme and he was left with this dilemma. Does he take his medication and become a lesser darts player or does he not take his medication and have the mood swings that come with it and sometimes that might result in some very odd behaviour? What do you say to a sportsman who says, Dr Phil, should I take my tablets or not? I say, look, at the end of the day, this has to be your decision, your informed choice. So I would be explaining to that person the pros and cons, the, the benefits, but also the side effects of the medication and laying it on the line and saying you need to think in terms of performance about whether at this stage of your life being a top darts player is more important than maybe the impact this might be having on relationships outside. It's Hobson's choice, it's catch-22, it's very difficult, but ultimately it's for the patient to decide. I'm going to play devil's advocate there and say that could be seen by your client as a, as a cop-out. Yeah, it could be, but my role is not to tell them how to live their lives. My role, as we said before, is to teach them to be the best coach they can be for themselves. Ultimately, I want them to make an informed decision based on good evidence, and that's my role. Let's move on to addictive behaviours, and another of our um, stellar programmes was with former Manchester United and Newcastle and Northern Ireland winger Keith Gillespie, who talked in depth about his main addiction, which was gambling, and how he lost so much money when he was a player? Well, basically, the very first time I was in the book bookmakers, I um, it just got a hold of me, you know, the thrill of, of you know, putting a bet on and, and, you know, trying to get that winner. Um, when, I, when, I, when I moved to Newcastle, um, it spiralled more and more out of control. Um, the first sort of five months of my life at Newcastle, I lived in a hotel. And after training, maybe by half 12, I was leaving the training ground. I had the rest of the day to myself um, and to fill those afternoons in I went to the bookies rather than, than go home to an empty hotel room um, other players had had their own lives, families you know, kids to go back to I was 19 years of age I'm just wondering how life might have been very different uh, all those years ago had you played golf for example with some of the older players rather than ended up in the bookies yeah it's certainly something I wish obviously I had done Um you know, I'm I'm a, I'm a keen golfer now. Um, <laughs> I play quite a bit. It's a bit late. Yeah, but, <laughs> better late than never. But um, yeah, it's it's something that you know I, I I played occasionally, but for me the 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 thrill of of being in a bookmakers and and trying to win, you know, I have that that in me where the thrill of it you know the adrenaline when you're watching your your horse and it's going to pass the line first is is something that that was there in me um and probably you know even if I was playing golf I'd have still been sort of gambling as well 
What was your reaction listening to the Keith Gillespie programme, Phil? Well, I love the title of his book, you know, How Not to Be a Football Millionaire. <laughs> it's just, just brilliant. It just encapsulates it perfectly. I was really struck by two things. First of all was the way in which young people going into sport can very easily fall into wayward mm. patterns of behaviour. Um, things are improving to a degree, but the reality is if you stick a lot of money in a young person's not fully developed brain and their bank account, they are not going to make the wisest of decisions. The second thing was to note the fact that, and it still goes on to date, there is often a culture of gambling around clubs. At the club that he was at, Sir Alex Ferguson, you know, most successful football manager in this country of all time, loves a gamble. And so he was asking him to put his bets on, as his grandfather had done. So that just makes it okay. It takes away that kind of questioning. And I think we have to be very careful in society about the decisions we make about messaging around gambling. And interesting that, uh, that it's come up very, very recently in, in, in the sport of football that gambling companies are very much associated with the sponsorship of the game. Do you think there's double standards there? I think there are. It's been very interesting in the aftermath of the Jerry Barton FA disciplinary case that he strongly criticised the FA and the football authorities about the way in which they've colluded with the gambling industry. Um, and very recently, there have been some decisions made to reverse that level of relationship, which, which I encourage, I applaud, I think that's good. But there are still a number of gambling companies that are sponsoring top-level premiership football players and clubs. And when you look at the influence that's going to have, particularly on youngsters, particularly on teenagers, and how that links in with the gaming world that's out there, it is a problem area. In some of my client work, gambling has come up quite a bit. And sometimes the message that comes back from clients is it's all kicked off by boredom, something that Keith Gillespie alluded to. Is that a fair reflection of your experience too? Yes, it is. Certainly for all of the addictions that we see, whether that be gambling, alcohol, drugs, having too much time combined with disposable income and a brain that's not being stimulated is a risky combination. And that's something that uh, England Football World Cup squads have talked about when they go to a foreign country, they're stuck in a hotel miles from anywhere. The players complain of boredom. So what would you say to a football coach, a football management team who said, Phil, how do we get around the problem of boredom? I think anything, anything that's going to engage the players in something that's going to stimulate their brains. Now, you've got to be realistic if you're talking about young single men. Chances are you're not going to form a chess team with great <laughs> success in the short term. But there are ways of just getting people engaged in the environment that they're in, activities that aren't too demanding that might be linked to fans, might be linked to events, might be linked to some education. And where the great work is being done around sport is by the player associations because they are driving this kind of culture shift in a lot of clubs and within their bodies to try and encourage people to think about life beyond sport whether that's education whether that's networking whether that's developing transferable skills that kind of work is essential and I applaud it. Do you feel that gambling is more of a problem when a player is actually still in the middle of his career rather than at the end of his career do you think he gets transferred over? The evidence would suggest otherwise. I mean, there are lots of young people that could fall into gambling problems, but if you look at that transition out of sport as well, where someone's lost their self-esteem, they no longer see themselves as being the sports person there was, you can often see the lid come off it at these times. And, of course, the impact of that when you're no longer earning the money you were before is likely to be much more sharp. So that behaviour carries on post-career? Very much. It's to do with mentality. It's to do with how people cope with stress, for example, how they fill their time. And that's why I think this is an area that needs to be targeted and is being successfully targeted in, in some sports at the younger academy players. 
Welcome back. I'm Gary Bloom. This is On the Sporting Couch, and I'm joined in Harley Street by Dr Philip Hopley, consultant psychiatrist, to discuss our guests in the series. Phil, a theme that comes up often in my client work is people being true to themselves. Is that what you find too? Yes, it's a big challenge, isn't it, Gary? Because not just in the world of sport, in the world of business, there's this whole thing about where do I operate, where do I work, what's the culture here, what do I need to do to be successful, what are my role models showing me, and do I have to fall in line? There was a very interesting conference recently that was focused on being 100% of yourself in the workplace. And, And my view is that we can be content and we can be more relaxed and more productive if we can accept ourselves as who we are. But whether the organisations, whether the teams, whether the cultures are ready for that is really the key question. Now, to me, this, this is a real fault line between psychological services and sports clubs because my experience of working with sports clubs is that the players can't be themselves in the dressing room. There's a lot of bullying, there's a lot of people hiding from who they are, hiding their own mental health issues. But where does that come from, Gary? Why is it like that? What would you say from the work you've done? I think it's the pressure to conform. I think it's peer pressure, I think, first and foremost. And also there is, seems to me a inherent difficulty about team sport. You have to be part of a team and work together as a team, but at the same time you're trying to get somebody out of the position and get them out of the team so you're competing against somebody and at the same time trying to be part of a team it doesn't seem to work for me Mm. Uh, personally I think it's all driven by fear I think it comes back to the topic I talked about before which is mind traps how we perceive things and how we want the world to be for us if you think of some sort of high profile examples Frank Lampard was always described as someone who was really unusual as a Chelsea player because he had some A-levels and was quite academically bright. Graham Lasso in similar terms. And the consequence of that is they probably got a ribbing from the fans on the weekend and maybe in the dressing room they had it taken out of them there as well. But actually, did those differences make them better at what they were? Did make them better players? 100% right. If you look at the work that Wayne Smith does, the New Zealand rugby coach, he's always hammering this mantra to be yourself, to be the best version of yourself will translate into a better performance. So somehow we have to find a way collectively of changing these collective views that it's my way or the highway because, frankly, that's going to limit performance. It's going to impact negatively. But if fear is the culture in a dressing room, how can a team be successful? Same as in business. You can only really shift culture if it comes top down. So in the kind of training work that we might do in investment banks or in law firms, unless you get the board, the senior management, saying, yes, I want to ascribe to this program for building resilience or increasing mental health awareness, it will not fly if you put it in at the mid-grade it'll look good but people will be saying well why are we being given this well why why are we different is there something going on here all those sort of stigmas that would be around will come out and will be inflamed in a way so it's got to come from the top one episode really bears out what we're talking about and that was the episode with Nigel Owens the rugby union referee and he said how important it was to him in the, his success as a referee to lead a life that was true to himself. The biggest challenge I came across in my life was was accepting my sexuality, accepting who I was. Um, and I think that is the biggest challenge anybody comes across in their life, whether it's accepting you have uh, a job problem, relationship problems as a kid in school, accepting you have a problem with the exams, worries about whatever they are. If you're being bullied, accept it. You are being bullied and you do something about it. Because it's only when you accept 
that there is something that is affecting your life in whatever way it is and whatever it is, however trivial it is or however big it is. It's only when you accept there is something wrong that you can then do something about it. And, and I accepted that night that I now needed to accept my sexuality and, and then move on to the next challenge over the years, which was, what am I going to do about it? Um, but that, there is no doubt that that, that night in hospital when my mum came back, um, you know, I I didn't really get a chance to to tell her this because she she passed away then about nine years ago from, from cancer and... Um, we spent a sort of lot of time with each other during that year because we knew she was going to die within that year, and you know the doctors told her that a year it was she was expected to live a year and a year it was. So, but I wish I had um, had had told her that you know that what she told me that night actually sort of saved me my life and and helped me become who I am today. I guess. If she could listen to this interview, what would you like to say to her, Nigel? I would like to tell her that, um, first of all, that I was sorry for what I put her and my dad through um, that night, and probably what I put them through as well in in probably years to come as well, because they must have been worried if I've done this once, am I going to do it again? Because I didn't tell them why until I actually told my mum that I was gay, you know, um, about nine years after that event. Um because I didn't know how they would react. I didn't know how my family and friends... I didn't know if I could carry on refereeing because there was nobody out in, 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 in rugby, in a sport. And, um, and when I look back at this now, this is a, such a stupid thing. Um, because only about 18 months ago, I had a, a message um, from a young kid who was about 16, 17 years of age. Um, he'd got hold of my phone number from a friend of his who was in school with a cousin of mine and I had a text asking if um, I could meet up because he was dealing with his sexuality and was going through what I'd gone through. So I rung him and I said, and yes, I said, I meet up. And and this kid had just been checked out of his home. This is only 18 months ago by his mum and dad because he was gay. And I don't know his mum and dad well. I know of them. I know that they go to church every Sunday. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, these these parents go to church every Sunday, supposed to be Christians or whatever religion they are. And here they are. I've, I've chucked their son out on the street. He was living with his auntie, I think, or great-auntie. Um, and then I realised that's what I was thinking. In that period after accepting who I was, there was still that worry. Is my mum and dad going to speak to me again? You know, are they going to disown? I was still living at home. You know, I lived at home till I was 34 years of age. Are they, are they going to check me out? And I was actually going through that now. Obviously, no, with my mum and dad, they would have never done that. But it was a worry at the time. And it's unbelievable to think that today parents disown or don't speak to their children because of their sexuality, because they are different. And, and that is part of the reason why I didn't tell my mum and dad. But... I knew now that, obviously, of course, I could have told my mum and dad and they would have embraced me with, with open arms and told me that that they loved me no matter what. I think the Nigel Owens episode was one of the most extraordinary ones about his bravery, about challenging bullying and also coming to terms with his sexuality. I wonder what your reaction was. I found it very very powerful and very emotive and, and I wonder what it was like for you actually to be in the recording studio with him when he was sharing that. 
I got quite tearful, actually. Uh, I was welling up because of my emotions about how close he was to having a successful attempt on his life. And yet he overcame that. Uh, and I was quite in awe of him, to be honest. Do you find sometimes with the work that you do, Gary, not just in sport but with other clients, that if you get those raw, honest exchanges, there's something so authentic about it that it does impact you as a psychotherapist? Definitely. And I've, the training to be a psychotherapist involves recognising those emotions and realising what your reaction is to the client's material because there's something going on between you. But to have that in front of a live microphone, I think, was extraordinary. It's, it's extraordinary when it happens in the privacy and confidentiality of a consulting room. But for Nigel to share that with the world, I think, was an extraordinary piece of radio. And my question back to you is, what makes sportsmen and women and people like Nigel able to share like that? Oh, it's just incredible bravery. I mean, I think one of the things that we've learnt over the years working in elite sport is that the starting point for the majority of even young sportsmen and women is that they're pretty resilient. To get to where they get to, they've had to be used to winning, losing, dealing with setbacks. Those that can't deal with setbacks, those that aren't resilient, actually drop by the wayside. I can think of a number of peers of mine that got to a sort of certain level, but then either the going got too tough or they had a bad experience, and for them that was too much. So their starting point is quite good. But to take them to the next level, to be like an Owens, like a Duncan Bell, like a Marcus Truscothic, and stand up and say, these are my issues, this is what I've experienced, takes incredible bravery. And I think it's a very individual, personal attribute. But all of those people that you mentioned who were part of the show talked about their fear, their fear of coming out, their fear of... Uh, exposing themselves and their mental health issues, their fear of exposing themselves of having a depressive illness. They were not people who just said, yeah, I'm going to go for it. They all came up to that, uh, the point of the abyss, and decided to leap over. I think this is the key issue about human nature. We are all, at some time or other, and for many of us a lot of the time, hamstrung, hampered by fear. It's a very common, normal reaction it's part of our physiology we deal with threat by responding in a certain way we feel it in our bodies it helps us to get ready to perform and it's how we interact with that fear that stress that pressure that will sort of mark out those that are going to be successful against those that are going to be maybe held back and so at an individual level these people have somehow managed to find the courage hopefully supported by others because we're seeing stigma falling away and a lot of positive attention being directed now towards mental health for example in a way that enables people to stand up and say, this is my story. So just to, to the side of that, what would you say to somebody um, like myself, and clients have said this to me, Gary, don't take my competitive side away. Don't, make, don't, get, don't go anywhere near that, because without that competitive side, I'm not going to be able to be a sportsman or woman. Well, I would say this. I would say I will not take your competitive side away in the competitive arena but I will certainly help you adapt because the chances are that if there are some problems outside the sport, it's some of these rigid behaviours and thinking patterns that are being applied where it's not helpful. If you think about some of the top-level sportsmen playing cricket, golf, tennis, for example, they travel around the world. Those that are lucky enough to have balanced, stable relationships may have a family at home who don't travel with them. And I tell these men and women, when you get home, remember... You are not the king of this castle or the queen of this land. Because if you try and live your life as you've been living it, where everything is done for you, there are going to be problems. So you have to be adaptable. 
If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Welcome back on the Sporting Couch. This week comes from Harley Street, where Dr. Philip Hopley, consultant psychiatrist, and myself, Gary Bloom, sports broadcaster and psychotherapist, are discussing this series. And in this section, we're going to hear from Rebecca Adlington. Phil, I'd like to talk next about the nature of fame, because it does come along with uh, our well-known sportsmen and women. Can it be a blessing or a hindrance? Oh, it can be whatever we make of it. You know, I speak to many sportsmen and women who have been successful and fame has brought them opportunity, it's brought them recognition, it's brought them financial stability and in some cases financial, significant financial rewards. On the other hand, the flip side of that coin is that you are going to be a public commodity, you're going to be exposed to social media. There are times when you will not want to be receiving the kind of attention you do and that's the trade-off. I'm going to flip this round a bit because to the ordinary Joe on the street or the Joanne on the street, they say, what's the problem? They're paid oodles of money. They're recognised everybody where they go. They can get a table in any restaurant. What they're bleating about, why they're coming to places like Cognacity, why they're seeing psychiatrists like you. Yeah, I can understand why people might take that cynical view. But I mean, at the end of the day, we're all human beings. We all have a mind, we have a brain, we have a level of functionality that can come under pressure depending on all the pressures that we're facing. The counter-argument, I think, is that these people often provide huge amounts of pleasure and entertainment across very wide multimedia platforms, and so why shouldn't they be entitled to get good support if they can get it? The biggest challenge for most of these people is still recognising and putting their hands up and saying, I'm struggling, can you help me? Do you think it's harder to hold your hand up and say, I'm struggling, if you are a very well-known public figure? 
I think it can be. I think it comes back to this issue of what the culture around the sport or the team or the organisation is like, because that's difficult. I think we, we recognise that young men do struggle with recognising their emotions. Actually, the younger generations, maybe those under 25 who've had some exposure at school through mental health awareness training, are probably better than those 25 plus. But it's not the easiest thing to do. But every time somebody does, the impact on them and those around them is extremely positive. Well, one programme comes to mind when we're having this conversation, and that's the show with Olympic swimmer Rebecca Adlington, who found it so difficult to come to terms with the effects of her fame and how to build relationships at the present time. I'm very fine with being on my own. I mean, I've gone on holiday on my own. I go to the cinema on my own. I'm fine with my own company, you know, and I'm so independent. I'm not one of those people that, like, I need to ask for this, like, how's this and how's that and how do I do this? Like, I'm fine. I can crack on and I'll get stuff done very good at that but at the same time I want a partner I want somebody to come home to in an evening I want somebody to share my life with um I would love to have more kids there's there's all that I I love being a mum it is the best thing in the world being a mum and I would love more kids and there is that I I do want to be with someone of course it's not something that I'll just be with somebody for the sake of it I'm not that person and it's not like I can go on a dating website <laughs> being in the public eye is it famouspeopledating.com so, that needs to get set up <laughs> i swear you've got an idea there but uh yeah there isn't anything i can do you know it's not like i can go i think when you're a mum my priority is to be the best mum possible to summer how difficult is it when you meet somebody and you think i wonder if they're with me because who i am that's what Harry really had to do at the start. I think because he's younger than me, he saw Beijing and he really idolised me. Um, so when we first got together, it, we were just kind of dating for a long time and Harry had to step back and say, I need to figure out whether I like you or whether I like you because of everything you've achieved. And it, it, he really kind of wanted to make sure he was with me for the right reasons. And even now, it's. I had a conversation with my friend this morning going, because he was like, told me about this Bumble or something, this dating app. And he, he was like, and I was like, I can't go on that because then every guy is just going to go, just want to go on a date just so I could say I've been with Becky Ellington. Do you know what I mean? It's So that's constantly on my mind. Definitely now that you are out, I am single and meeting people. It's definitely a question that's always in the back of my mind. Does it get in the way, do you think, when you go on a first date? I think it depends. I've been very lucky that I've not been on a first date with a total stranger that I've not known about. I always kind of like a recommendation or like a vet. Somebody's vetted them or they're friends of the friend or something that I'm like, okay, I know they're cool and I know they're fine with it sort of thing. Um, So I haven't had that experience yet. I'm sure I will. I'm sure I'm going to in the future. Um, So I'll report back. But it must be in the back of your mind, surely. Oh, all the time. Of course it is. Um, And yeah, you want somebody to understand that. And I think the hardest thing, obviously, when I was with Harry, is that he wasn't in the public eye. And now I'm questioning, I now think to myself, do I want somebody that's in the public eye? Do I not? And it is just kind of, it is a real thing that opens up because I was very conscious of that when I was with Harry. Harry's got no desire to be famous at all. Mm. And even now, I think if I did go on a date with somebody, not only are they just going on a date with me because I'm Becky Addington, but are you going on a date with me because you want the fame? 
that's what I ask myself more as well. Because anybody you date now, and I've seen it in the national newspapers, say, oh, Becky Adlington might be holding hands with, might be seen with, might be... So there is there is a sense that somebody could piggyback your fame quite clearly. 100%. And that's completely in the back of my mind and something that I'm very, very aware of. Um, and that's why I'm not stating right now because I'm just like, what's the point until I meet somebody that I trust and that I respect, well, then what's the point? What was your reaction to, to hearing Rebecca's story? I thought that was really sad, actually, Gary. I, you know, I, I just thought for someone, and she's a lovely person, she comes across so well on TV and on radio, for her to be in that position where she can't allow herself to take the risk of, of starting a relationship because of her fears of trust and, and whether that person is genuinely interested in her, I thought it was terribly sad. I think it goes down to a element of trust and how do we trust the world if we get to that level of fame? I agree. And again, this is a personal, individual aspect of our thinking that will be shaped by our early lives, what our relationships have been like before. I don't know Rebecca's history, but has she been hurt in previous relationships and therefore that's throwing a shadow over what may come but but generally speaking it's how we perceive what's going on around us and and I'm quite confident that with a bit of support from someone like you Gary someone like Rebecca could actually overcome some of these mind traps and and I'd be I'd be interested to know how you might having interviewed her on the radio go about doing that I think it's to do with confidence and I think it's to do with trust and I think you're right she must have been hurt at some stage I think what fascinated me talking to Becky was the fact that given all the online trolling that she suffered, that she would then pursue a career as a TV presenter. It seemed the complete antithesis of what you'd expect. Mm. One wonders whether, because we talked before about fame, but one wonders whether actually there is an element of that fame which is slightly seductive or even, dare we say, addictive. And once you've had a flavour for that, that that positive accolade is something that you want because it fires off that certain something in your brain that when you're a retired sports star is much harder to get. And I guess if it is a form of addiction, far safer than going down the route of gambling, drugs or alcohol. Do you think this is... uh a facet for many of our sports people, why they seek out a second career in the media to give them the sort of fame and adoration that they had when they were playing their sports? I think so. I think that makes kind of intuitive sense that there's something that they no longer can access and this is a way of them staying active and, in a sense, their credibility being held up and and being continued. That's only available, though, for a very small number. You know, you've really got to be at the top of your game to have that opportunity. The greater numbers, particularly in football, you know, they leave football, they haven't got necessarily any formal training or opportunities to go after. And if you look at some of the tracking exercises that are done for former successful premiership footballers, their life course after football often takes a challenging and rocky road. Which takes us neatly into the uh, last bit of our discussion, Phil, about what you and I would call transitioning. What happens to sportsmen and women after they finish playing their sport and how they transition into a new life? It's hugely difficult for many people, isn't it? Very, and I think you you see this in some of the cases you've worked with in recent years that we've discussed. That transition is is very, very difficult, that loss of self-esteem, that not quite knowing where someone is. I think it's one of the, the... if you like, the undiscovered realities of professional sport that is now coming much more to the fore. And especially when injury strikes and there's a sudden loss of career, that can be even harder. 
Yeah, I remember years ago, my brother Damien, who's now the um, chief executive of the Rugby Players Association, his career when he was playing for England in the top squad in the country was ended, you know, without any choice. It was an injury. He spent 18 months trying to battle back, surgery, etc. Impact on him was massive. There was no doubt that he was depressed for the next couple of years. It impacted his relationships, impacted his quality of life. He dealt with it very well. You know, that for him was the motivation, the catalyst to set up the Players Association. How we deal with these things is critically important. Final question, Phil, before we finish. If there's anybody listening, sportsman or non-sportsman or woman, listening to our discussion and is struggling with a mental health issue, depression, anxiety, mood disorders, what's your message to them? The maxim, the old maxim, could not be truer. A problem shared is a problem halved. Speak to anybody, a friend, a member of the family, a GP, someone you know at work. Get it out, share it and access some help. You've been listening to a special edition of On the Sporting Couch, a programme that's attempted to lift the lid on mental health issues in sport. I'm Gary Bloom, a psychotherapist, counsellor and sports broadcaster, and my guest from Cognacity here in Harley Street has been Dr Philip Hopley, consultant psychiatrist. I hope the programme will have encouraged anyone who has or knows anyone who has mental health issues to come forward and get help. And there are some useful links on the TalkSport website if you look at talksport.com forward slash sporting dash couch i'm gary bloom and please remember there's no such thing as good health without good mental health goodbye Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.